You're listening to Irish Radio Canada at Home and Abroad, and I'm delighted to have the opportunity to have a chat with Joe McCall, and Joe's based in Galway. He's a cavern man, but um, we wouldn't hold that against anybody. Uh, Joe, Joe has a, um, a, a portfolio of, of sculpt, sculptures, and I don't know if portfolio is the proper word when you'd apply it to sculptures, but Joe will correct me on that. And it's called uh, the... the um, actual collection, and maybe it's called Potato People, and it's the Irish famine in clay, and it has been exhibited at Strokestown House, and Joe is hoping that he can bring it across the Atlantic and have it on display in Canada. Joe, Tafaltaro, thanks a million for taking the time to have a chat. I'm, I'm very grateful to be able to talk to you, Austin. Thank you so much. Uh, a little bit about you and your art. Um, and sculpting. Uh, you work in clay. Yeah, well, um, I graduated in the College of Art a lot of years ago. We won't go into the timeline because I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a, a, a spring chicken. And um, uh, from there, went working for Royal Tower of China and worked for Balik and Donegal Parry and all the big companies in, 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 in Ireland that were there at the time. Eventually, I opened up my own company, Cray Irish Porcelain, producing porcelain giftware for the, the American market as well as the, the ad. And um, I round all of that up in 2002 when the market was changing and, and, and I thought that was me finished with ceramics. But a few things happened and uh, I always had an interest in, I, I still kept my hand in and making pieces and making sculpture pieces in ceramics. But I came up with a few different techniques uh, trying to keep my uh, grandchildren occupied here at my at my studio, and uh, it just it just happened. I didn't plan to do these sculptures. I didn't plan. Uh, I didn't do a lot of research or reading into the famine. I think it's innate in all of us who live here. There's a famine graveyard within about a 15 minute walk from where I live, uh, which I visit frequently, and I think there's something very deep in, in our Irish psychic. And for me, I just started making pieces. Uh, I was working on some pieces relating to the Holocaust, and it was a very easy transition to work from the Holocaust to the Irish famine. And that's that's where I come from. Um, but dealing with clay for about 40 years, so clay isn't, isn't, isn't a frightening material for me to work with. Um, but then add, add that level of experience to our cultural uh, heritage and uh, into that shocking event that took place in 1845. Um, that's where the sculptures, uh, the, the, the range of sculptures that I came up with, that's where it originated from. Joe, a technical question, because I wouldn't no, be... A lot of, sorry, I, would, I wouldn't be in any way versed, but go, to, go ahead. To, work, to work in clay, and of course clay is very much um, reflective of the land, I presume yes. it's a particular clay, and if so, where do you get it? Well, the clay I use, it's called just a grog clay. All of clay that's used in ceramics and pottery in Ireland tends to come from Stoke and Trent, directly or indirectly. Um, there's nothing really, really scientifically particular about it. But the clay I used for this technique is a paper clay, which is uh, a heavily grog clay mixed with, above all things, toilet paper in its wet state. 
Uh, there's a certain ratio you've got to get right. But what this did for me and for this sculpture range of pieces, it allowed me to cure them and fire them very quickly without any damage done to them. Um, so um, it, it, it just meant working for me was fun and fast and, and, and fairly furious in some cases. Uh, the firing technique I use for these sculpture pieces is called Raku. They're only fired to a thousand degrees, which is about 200 degrees less than most porcelains or china clay. But at that thousand degrees, I get a full cure and I melt a glaze onto these pieces. And the fact that it's paper clay, it means that the shock factor that takes place when you eat something isn't there. It's reduced it considerably. So my losses were almost nil. Uh, I don't want to bore you with, with, with the technology, but having paper clay and using a Raku kiln meant that I could work on these pieces quite fast and quite successfully without without losing anything. So, Joe, then, when it comes to the actual sculpting of clay, um, at what stage, I presume you have to work on this when it's still in a soft, malleable state before you would fire it? Yeah, it's the closest thing to leather. Now, I say that because my father was a shoemaker and um, I was very familiar with this material. And, and paper clay, when it's when it's been modelled, I have it in the state and it's very like leather, very pliable. It's not overly sticky, but it moves in your hands very, very simply. Uh, lovely, lovely material to work with. And the reason I call this body of work the potato people, relating to the pa- uh, potato famine, of course, but I also used potatoes to wrap clay around to create the heads of a number of these sculpture pieces. So I, I, I get a large potato, prepare it, and wrap the piece of clay around it. And there's a way of mo- removing the potato. The potato isn't left there. And, and then finishing the model of, of, of the heads. Uh, so I felt it was apt to christen and call this body of work the potato people. Um so working with working with paper clay, I also build armatures out of steel, steel rods, and chicken wire. And so I have three three materials: steel rods, chicken wire, and paper clay. And all of them are positioned in the kiln together, and all of them survive the firing together. So these pieces have skeletons literally underneath the, the clay of chicken wire and steel rods. Interesting, you said I was at the Statue of Liberty recently, and it's fascinating to realise that it's, uh, as the guide explained, that the uh, copper is the thickness yes. of, of a coin yes. with, with a frame inside it, uh, and uh, phenomenal. Yes, so it's then, the frame that's important. Yes. So then when it comes to the, when did you actually do the sculpting? When did the potato people, uh, uh, when did it become a collection? Uh, uh, when it became a reality, uh, you're there, Austin. You are. Yep. yep. Uh, not, uh, a couple of years ago, three years ago, I had I between Mary and I, we have ten grandchildren. I had four of them out here for a week, and they were bored, and we wanted to keep them off their devices. So Mary suggested that I bring them into the studio and try and do something with them. So that's that's where my my modelling with this material started because for them it was quick and fast and furious and they loved that. It held their attention. But when they left after the the fortnight, I kept working working with it. Uh, I I got asked a lot where did the the impetus where did the influence 
of the, where did it just arrive? And I don't have an answer. It just happened on a day. I built one piece and then another and, and then another and then another. And it just went on and on and on until the 18 or 19 pieces were finished. And Mary, my wife, kept asking me, where are they coming from? And I couldn't give her an answer. So as I look at myself as I'm just a hand. <clears throat> but these psychic things that are inside us really take me, uh, take the wind out of me in, in, in many ways because we're not in, we're not in control as we like to think we are. Now, I enjoyed the process greatly. I used to look at the results coming out of the kiln and where in the name of God did these come from? And, and the instigator of the project, it has its own life. Where it came from, I don't know. And where it's going to go to, even with the ex- exhibitions, I don't know. And I, I'm quite happy in one sense that I'm not in full control. But the world we live in tends to want to be in control of everything. Uh, this project has its own energy and, and it's taken on its own energy, which is great. It's interesting when you're talking those terms because I t- when I talk to authors, oftentimes they say they don't know where the character how the character came in the book they're writing. And you're thinking, how could you write a book and not know the person? And they said they're getting to know them as they write. And to that end, you have a neighbour down the road who I know was involved in the Famine Chronicles, uh, Declan O'Rourke. And yes. Declan, of course, had composed music for the Famine Chronicles, and he has also written books separate from that. Your work was on exhibition up in Strokestown House, and uh, I know Declan has performed up there as well. How did you come to the attention of Strokestown and the famine uh, movement? This is is the awareness that's, hap- that's happening. I first uh, exhibited the, this body of work in Kinvara, and there is an exhibition hall in Kinvara, but I felt it was too clean, too too white, too too perfect. Uh, for the ruggedness of these pieces. But opposite that building, there was a, an empty, a vacant building that had been purchased by two chaps some time ago, and it used to be an old forge. So they allowed me to have that uh, with no charge, the great, great people, and I spent some money wiring it and tidying it up and making it presentable and safe for, 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 for people coming through the exhibition. And I mounted the exhibition there. And it worked so well. I, I was absolutely shocked. And I have, I still have, I will never get rid of the visitor's book that was filled up by people passing through the exhibition. And, and their words about the exhibition were so encouraging. But you could feel their, their in-depth knowledge uh, and almost psychic knowledge of the famine. Now, most of my uh, visitors were from 40, 40 plus. Yeah. And, and the older they were, the longer they spent, and, and the, the feeling that they expressed to me about the exhibition really, really took took the wind out of my sails. I then tried to get it into Galway, and Galway was not the easiest city to get in because space is often difficult. And I was offered a brand new building in Galway, which I didn't know would it or could it work because you know, you've got stainless steel and large glass windows, and and then these uh, clay, pretty harrowing-looking figures. Uh, but the owner of the building said, Joe, bring one of them in, one of the sculptures in, and we'll put it up. And if one works, they'll all work. Uh, and we did that. So we exhibited it first in Kambara, 
then in Galway, and at the end of that exhibition, I contacted Strokestown, and, and they came back to me. I went up and visited them. I left them the small book that we created on the famine. We've had a couple of meetings, and it, it, it went from there. So it then spent three months in Strokestown. It was it was uh, curated terribly, terribly well, and uh, it, it got a great it got a great showing there, which I'm very happy with. Very happy with. And that leads but to, now is the next that, stage. That's leading us to the next stage, where you, the ambition and the hope would be that it can cross the ocean and come to Gross Eel. Come. To, I, I, I always had, yeah, I, I always had the feeling that these they should travel. They should certainly cross the ocean, uh, as the as the people did, um, as a kind of a part of its provenance. That 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 the store, everything you do with these sculptures stays with them. And and I think the the warrant uh, as much protection on that field as possible. So I like the idea of them going over to uh, Quebec or Grosil or uh, to be be part of the journey of of the horror of the story. Uh, and that will always stay with these sculptures. And 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 when if and when they return back to this country, all of those stories stay with them. You know their journey, where they've been, who has seen them, uh, how people have been emoted by them, and so on and so forth. So that, that's my that's my ambition for these pieces. And of course, there's a, there is a tremendous awareness in Canada of the Irish famine between, and uh, it is also reflected in sculptors, Ronan Gillespie's sculptures, which appear in Dublin and also in Toronto, and um, the uh, Grosseil itself, the monument on Gros Isle and then there's the Black Rock monument in, in um, Montreal. So the, the Canadian, the Irish Canadian is very much aware of and uh, I know would greatly appreciate as an exhibition like this, the availability of it and being able to see it. Um, yes. So, so I know you're only starting your efforts and uh, yeah. we, we, will, we will be doing what we can to see if we can help uh, move it along. Um, I, would, I would ask that if anyone's listening here and, and has any connections, uh, be it in Quebec City, Fort Grosseil, uh, Montreal, yeah. Ottawa. Kingston is also a relevant spot along the St. Lawrence River, River and then down into Toronto, uh, which would be the path that many of the uh, famine Irish on uh, water migrated. Um, I know in, in yes. Griff Griffintown in, in Montreal had literally famine sheds where people were quarantined and likewise in Toronto. So while Grosseil was the port of or point of entry, in many cases because the disease didn't manifest, manifest itself for a number of weeks after they landed, many had made their way to Montreal and on to Toronto. Uh, before yes. they actually died. So the relevance of being able to make something like this available across the famine route would be powerful. Yes. Well, that's very heartening for me to hear this. Um, of course, now let's get down to the dirty business. Uh, the one thing I have to try and do is finance this. Right. No, I, I financed this project uh, out of my own pocket up to this, and that is the building of the pieces, the moving of, around of the pieces, the building of the crates. Uh, I've done a lot of printing. Uh, we printed the small book, a lot of posters ready. Um, 
so it has sat me dry to to a point. So it would be lovely to sponsor. I, I think that's very important. If I could get a sponsor that would uh, take interest and be able to finance the the travelling of this. Now this is a project. I, I I'm not making any money out of it. Uh, but one old gentleman at the at one of the exhibitions in Kibara said, Joe. This project looks like a vocation. And I said, oh, no, you don't need to go that far. He, says, he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, let me tell you, this is a vocation. So quite honestly, I have a job to do because of them. And now even though I, made, I built them, it's almost like they're there out of their own, their own doing. Very little got to do with me. I'm just the hands. Uh, but I'm now the custodian. Audience, so I, I have to respect them, look after them, uh, tend to them, move them when moving is, is, is appropriate and so on. Uh, and that's just where I fit in. I might be termed or called this, and, and I'll take that on the shoulders, but there's a lot of other work that has to be carried out. And any help I could get from anybody on that one, but financing, getting it to these venues, mounting them, uh, uh, getting me over to, to, to look after all of that. And um, and, and then, of course, the travel, uh, a, a mode of, of transporting these goods over over to that part of the world. John McCall, it's been a real pleasure so connecting that's, with you. That's... Yeah, John, it's been yes. a real pleasure connecting with you. I want to thank you for taking the time. You and I will yes. be talking. We'll keep in touch. And uh, I hope we can see this project come to fruition. Well, listen, Austin, I, I can't thank you enough. Uh, yeah, I, I've spoken to you earlier this week, and I didn't think you would do so much. Anymore like you, I think the project will take on its own life. So I thank you very warmly. Personne n'a toujours rien compris, on retient pas les bonnes leçons de l'histoire. On veut nous laisser dans le monde 
c'est des millions de gamins qui crèvent encore la dalle. Il y a des milliards d'euros pour fabriquer des balles. C'était la misère en Irlande depuis un siècle et demi. Partout dans le monde, on fait les mêmes conneries. Partout, tout le monde refait la même connerie.